0: We're starting this new series tonight, and I feel like I've told you guys a little bit about what this series is really all about. And, um, and you know, I, I want to be clear whenever I say this. That when we talk about the women of Christmas, as is the title of this series, um, <clears throat> who exactly we're talking about here? So, you know, I, I think if, if most of us in here heard the women of Christmas, you know, some, ma- the, some names that would come to mind would be like Mary or Elizabeth or people like that, right? People who are associated with the Christmas story. Those are the people or the women that we would think of as the women of Christmas, However, uh, and and I'll, and I'll just tell you guys how this kind of came into my brain. Um, you guys know if you come on Sunday mornings, which if you don't, you really should. Um, we'd love to have you in Sunday school and in big church, as I still call it. Um, but Aaron's been preaching a series on the book of Joshua and looking at the story of Joshua and the wall of Jericho and how they marched around it and the wall fell. And I mean, I'm sure most of you guys know that story, but. He was reading a part, and I was looking, and we'll talk about this part. We don't have church next Wednesday, by the way, because Thanksgiving's the next day. So we'll look at this one I'm about to mention in two weeks. But he was talking about a specific person in that story of Jericho and the wall. And I saw a little note in my Bible that said, see Matthew 1. And I was like, why does this person talked about Matthew 1? And I went and looked. And the person in that story was mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And if you don't know what a genealogy is, it's basically just a family tree. Okay, so it's like, you know, the parent, and then the kid, and then the kid, and then the kid, and then the kid, and the kid, and the kid, and all the way down to Jesus. And it mentioned this person who was in the story of the Jericho and the wall in the genealogy of Jesus. And what was notable about that was the person in this story was a woman. And I started to think. And looked at the genealogy of Jesus right there while Aaron was preaching. I'm sorry, I kind of got a little distracted. But I started reading the genealogy of Jesus and I noticed that outside of Mary, who obviously is at the very bottom of the genealogy of Jesus because she is Jesus' mother, there are only four women who are listed in the genealogy of Jesus because they tracked the genealogy of people through their father through the men at that time. And before we really look into this, I want to explain why the genealogy of Jesus is important, because I think most of us would open up the book of Matthew and start reading where it says, you know, so-and-so, beget so-and-so, beget so-and-so, and and we're just like, okay, let's skip to chapter 2 where the good stuff actually happens, like this doesn't make sense to me. But the importance of this was very clear, because when the book of Matthew was written, The only context they had to go on was the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was very clear about signs of who the Messiah would be. And it had a lot of different prophecies that the Messiah would have to fulfill. A few of these prophecies were directly related to the genealogy of the Messiah, whose line he would come of. And so we see a few things that Jesus or the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham which if you read in Matthew 1 is where the genealogy begins, because they're pointing to that, that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, which we see Judah in the genealogy, and actually we're going to look at Judah quite a bit tonight. And then we also know that he would be coming from the line of King David, and we also see King David, also known as the guy from David and Goliath, in the genealogy of Jesus. And then something interesting, if you read Matthew 1... And and you know what? I was going to read it to you tonight, but I want to try to get through all the notes that I have. And there's a lot of really hard names to pronounce in there. You can read Matthew 1 on your own if you'd like, because it is actually interesting. But um, we see an interesting thing. And if you know anything about numbers in the Bible, numbers are like super, super important in the Bible. And if you know anything about God, you know that seven is the number of God, meaning the number of completion. How many days did he did he... Make a week? Seven, right? It was the six days he used to create, and then the seventh day was rest. And so everything was, complete, was came to completion on the seventh day. <clears throat> we also know that six is the number of incompletion. It's the number of humanity. And so humans were created on the sixth day. And we know that eventually in Revelation it tells us that the number of the beast, the mark of the beast... And his number will be 666. I think we most of us know that 666 is like an evil number or something. But that's where it comes from, is this idea that 6 is the number of incompletion or falling short of God's number of 7. And so when we look at that through a numbers perspective, it's interesting because we actually see that from Abraham to David is 14 generations. Which is obviously... A multiple of seven. And then we see from King David to the the exile of Israel. When Israel gets kicked out of the promised land and sent to Babylon is 14 generations. Again, a multiple of seven. And then from the exile of the Israelites to Babylon to the birth of Jesus, who would ultimately redeem not just the Israelites but mankind, is also... 14 generations. So we see this as groupings of multiples of seven. And so it's important for us to note the genealogy. And so that's why that's important here and why it's listed. But as I said, you'll, you can notice from reading the genealogy that it was common practice to use the fathers and use men to track genealogy. And so there are lots of men that are not only listed in the genealogy of Jesus, but lots of men listed throughout the Bible. And most Bible stories involve a male character. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to see that the, in the time that the Bible was written, that everything was about men. Okay? There are very few women in the Bible, not in the Bible, but written about and their stories told in the Bible, and, you know, we, we could go into a whole, like, long spill about how unfair this is or how wrong it is. But the reality is, that's just how it was back then, okay? And, and that's just, that's all I can say. That was how the Bible was written. But what I think I take away from this is when I look at the Bible, and when I see a woman listed and her story told, I feel like it must have been a really big deal. Like, does that make sense to you guys? Because, like, if everything's about men and all the stories are about men, if someone takes the time to note the story of a woman and takes the time to write it out and not just write it out, but include it in Scripture, it must have been a pretty big deal. So, as we look through this genealogy of the Messiah in Matthew 1, we see four women. Again, not counting Mary, but we see four women. So over the next four weeks, we only have four more Wednesday nights before Christmas, because we don't have Wednesday night next week, and then we'll have three in December before we are off for Christmas break. So the next four Wednesday nights that we have in here, we're going to look at the stories of these four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And ultimately, how God uses them, despite all their downfalls, all their obstacles, to not only fulfill the plan that he had for them, but again, they're the genealogy of Jesus, so it's ultimately to fulfill God's plan to redeem all of mankind. And so this is a big deal. So as we walk through these, and, and I think you'll know a couple of these stories, and I think maybe you might know, not know a couple of these stories, but I think that these stories are so important for us to grasp, especially in our current society today, because we feel like, I hear students say all the time, That God can't use me because this has happened to me. Or God can't use me because I've done this. Or God can't use me because I struggle with this. And these stories are all about women who had tremendous obstacles, who had tremendous injustices done to them, who had tremendous downfalls in their life, and how God used them, despite all these things, to not just act in the story and do what they do in the story, but ultimately to redeem mankind through their genealogy. It's a very interesting thing to look at. So tonight, we're going to look at our first lady in the genealogy of Jesus. And you don't have to go very far into the genealogy of Jesus to get to the person we're going to talk about tonight, which is Tamar. T-A-M-A-R. you have your bibles and you want to turn to genesis 38 that's where the story of tamar is Um, but when i look at this and 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 if you know anything about tamar you can you can sit here and you can read in fact i'll just read in in matthew one it says a record of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david and the son of abraham abraham was the father of isaac isaac the father of jacob jacob the father of judah and his brothers That's important because Judah and his brothers are the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah had 11 brothers. Um, And then Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And so we see Tamar as the matriarch or the the head woman of the tribe of Judah. Right? She is... When you read that, you come across and think that must be Judah's wife. Right? She was... The one who married Judah and started the tribe of Judah that Jesus, the Messiah, would ultimately come out of. And so it would almost make sense on a surface that she would be listed because it's kind of a big deal. Because, you know, you would think, okay, well, she's the matriarch of the tribe of Judah, so she'd be listed. But what's crazy about this story is not only was Tamar not the wife of Judah, she was actually his daughter-in-law. Okay? And, and you know what? I'm going to pause right there because some of you are probably going, ew, gross. Okay? And I'm going to be totally honest. This story that we're going to look at tonight is maybe at best PG-13. Maybe rated R. Okay? like <laughs> But what I'm going to give you guys tonight is really kind of the PG version. Ch- chill. 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 You're gonna, I'm, you guys are going to get the PG version tonight. Um, but... It's in the Bible. I can't really stop you from reading Genesis thirty-eight. You know, it's in there. So, but so let's let's kind of look at some context of where we are in the book of Genesis as we read this. So, most of you guys probably know the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors. I mean, DreamWorks made a movie about it. Okay, so like it's a very popular story. But if you know anything about the story of Joseph, we know that Joseph was Jacob. You know that we just read about Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel and was the father of the twelve sons that became the twelve tribes. Jacob, or Jacob's favorite son of the twelve was Joseph. And there's a bunch of reasons, but tonight's not about Joseph. You just need to know that he was his favorite son. Gave him this cool rainbow coat, as we all depict it. And all the brothers were super jealous of Joseph and his, how much his father loved him. And one of the people who was namely the most jealous was Judah, in fact, he is one of the brothers by name who it said came up with the idea to sell him into slavery. Okay, so if you read Genesis 37, Judah is the genius that came up with this idea. And he also, I, it just says the brothers came up with the idea, but Judah seems kind of like he was in charge here. So I'm thinking he was also the one who came up with the idea to take Joseph's coat, tear it up, and put, this is important, baby goat blood on it. Okay, it says little goat, but I picture baby goat. Sounds worse. Uh, But we're trying to paint Judah as a bad guy here, okay? So he put little goat blood on the jacket to convince Jacob that his son Joseph had been killed. And when we look at this, We see that Jacob is so distraught from losing his favorite son that he mourns relentlessly In fact, his sons come to try to comfort him and he basically tells them to go away because he's going to mourn until he dies Okay, like this is a big deal like Jacob lost his favorite son and so It just says after this Judah leaves. Okay, so I'm not Judah and I'm not a Judah expert but I think there's a couple of reasons why maybe he leaves. Maybe he has guilt that he's driven his father into such a deep depression that he says he's going to take his mourning to his grave. Maybe it's some frustration in that his father still loves Joseph more than him when Joseph's dead. Maybe it's jealousy that Joseph is still the favorite son. Um, you know, I think there's a few things. But Judah leaves the situation. He can't handle being in around whatever's going on at home right there. And he ends up staying with a Canaanite. And if you know anything about biblical history, the Canaanites typically were people who, when the, when the Israelites mixed with them, not good things happened, okay? Like, in fact, I think at certain times, God instructs the Jewish people to stay away from Canaanites, you know, because them marrying Canaanites was causing all sorts of problems. And so we see Judah kind of interestingly go and stay with a family of Canaanites who has one of his daughters named Shua, okay? And uh, Judah ends up marrying Shua, and they have three sons, er okay, literally E-R, Ur, <laughs> Onan and Shelah, or Shelah, or something, I don't know. Shelah? I, I don't speak Hebrew. Uh, so, in this moment... Okay, listen, in this moment, we see Judah, the tribe of Judah, the one of the 12 sons of Israel, Judah, marry a Canaanite woman and have three sons. And so we literally see the formation of the tribe of Judah like that. That is where it begins. And, you know, what's interesting is we don't see Tamar in this picture. We don't see Tamar in this picture of the formation of what would be the tribe that Jesus would come from. And, you know, uh, it's interesting because we already know, like, we we can already see where this is going. Uh, And I'm just going to go ahead and spoil this for you. Tamar is not going to be an Israelite. She's going to be a Canaanite. Okay? Yeah. Shocker. Okay? Real, like, soap opera stuff going on here. And a quick sidebar. Quick sidebar, jumping to the New Testament, this idea of someone being outside of the Jewish community or the Israelites is something that the New Testament apostles would struggle with themselves. The fact that Jesus didn't just come to save and redeem the Jewish people and the Israelites, but he came to save and redeem all of mankind. like that That was something that the New Testament apostles struggled with, so it's interesting that we see God using someone outside of the Jewish community, outside of being an Israelite, to lead to the redemption of all people. Just sidebar. So let's jump back into our story. So we've got Judah, his wife, three sons. Okay? Enter Tamar. Tamar marries the oldest son, Ur. Tamar, a Canaanite, marries Judah's oldest son, Ur. And we're going to read, starting in Genesis 38, verses verse 6. Through eight, and it says, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Okay, so Ur out. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) verse eight Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her. As a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. Okay, let's pause right there. This is where it starts to get a little PG-13, okay? But we're going to sit here and we're going to say, we understand Old Testament law says that when a brother would die, it was the responsibility of his younger brother to then have his brother's children with his wife, okay? Like, that's just the way that it was, okay? So here's the problem. Here's the problem. Onan... The middle son was a very selfish individual, and he knew that whatever son he had with Tamar would not be counted his own son. It would be counted Ur's son, even though Onan's actually the dad. And so Onan refused to have a child with Tamar. He basically refused to fulfill his law responsibility to provide children to Tamar. And so for his selfishness in the moment, owning out. God puts him to death. Okay? So now, Judah's down two sons. Okay? He's only got one son left. And now this third son's responsibility is to father, child, father children for his oldest brother to his wife Tamar. Well, there's two problems that arise here. One... Shelah, or Sheila, however you want to say, she the youngest brothers. Shayla. Shayla, I like Shayla. let's go with that. So Shayla, <laughs> the youngest brother, is very young, okay? And Judah says, I think he's a little too young to be your husband and father children. Second, at this point, Judah now sees that this woman Tamar has been married to two of his sons, and both of them have died. And he no longer trusts Tamar, okay. I don't know if he thinks she's killing them or if like she just can't cook and they're dying. I don't know, like. But he does not trust Tamar anymore, okay. And so what Judah does here, and you can actually read it talks about this, is he sends Tamar back to live with her father, back to live with her original family. And if you understand anything about Jewish history, this is a bad, bad thing. Okay, So basically at this point, she goes back to live with her father as a widow, meaning she has to dress in certain widow clothes, and it means that she is like a social outcast, and people like, just don't care for her or take care of her or provide for her. Basically, if she gets sick, they just put her out to die. like They just put her out of the community so she doesn't get anyone sick and just let her die because she's a widow. No one cares. So like her going back to her father was a, was a really bad situation. Okay, so now Tamar is sitting here and she marries Ur and he's a bad guy. So God has him put to death. She ends up with Onan and he's a bad guy and God has him put to death. And Tamar is now on the hook for all of their badness. So at this point, I don't know about you guys, but I really start to look at this and say, Judah really doesn't seem like a very good guy. The way he dealt with his brother Joseph. The way that he married a Canaanite woman. The fact that he raised two evil sons. And the fact that he turns his back on his daughter-in-law Tamar. And I think that this is the moment, in this moment, where Tamar is at her lowest... She has had all these horrible things happen to her. She is literally a social outcast and wanted by no one that she turns the whole story on its head. She takes charge of the situation where she makes herself a hero and gets her name listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So we fast forward a little bit. Shayla is now old enough to take Tamar as his wife. But... Judah never reaches back out to Tamar to tell her that because he has no intention of ever letting Shayla be a part of Tamar's story. So Tamar realizes that she is never going to be back in favor with Judah. So she comes up with kind of a crazy plan to provide for herself. In Genesis 30, 38, starting in verse 13, we see this plan says, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to the town. Which, uh, so when, he, when she saw that through though Shayla had grown up, she had not been given to him as, as his wife, when Judas saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock. There we see the young goat again. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send the young goat, she asked. And he said, what pledge should should I give you? And Tamar replied, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her, and she and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she, oh, was that it? Okay. After she left, she took off her veil and put her widow's clothes back on again. Okay. So that's bad, but we have to realize that Judah's wife had died. Okay. Well, we kind of skipped that part. Judah's wife was dead. So, but still, not necessarily okay what he did, but. Tamar comes up with this idea to act as a prostitute to try to get with Judah. Okay? Hey, it is what it is. So now we see Judah continue to make bad decisions. Ironically, he makes but, another bad decision involving a young goat. Okay? It's kind like of like this story comes full circle, right? But this time, instead of getting away with his bad deed through the use of a young goat, he is on, end up going to get caught in his bad deed, with dealing with this young goat. So, verses 24 through 26 tell us what happened. About three months later, Judah is told that his daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Okay, Judah really not picking up the fact that he needs to be uh, taking care of Tamar here. He's basically left her to die, a widow... And he finds out she's pregnant and guilty of uh, prostitution. And and he goes, well, that's it. She's disgracing my family name. Burn her to death. Okay? Really not getting it. So Judas said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law saying, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal, cord, and staff these are. Judah recognized them and he said she is more righteous than I since I would not give her my son Shelah and he did not sleep with her and he did not sleep with her again. So this story is crazy, right? Okay, this story is just flat out bonkers. Because we have now Tamar who tricks Judah into sleeping with her and says, "Until you can pay me with this young goat, I want your seal and your cord and your staff because she knew that she would eventually be found out and she could reveal to him that it was her by having these things that only he would recognize. And that's exactly what happens. And now, not only is she going to be able to provide heirs to the family, she is going to be the matriarch for the tribe of Judah. She kind of supplanted what was her mother-in-law and took that role As the head of the tribe of Judah. So this is a crazy story, right? And Tamar did, you know, what some would look at and say is a really bad thing. Okay, like we could all look at this story and be like, that was a really like inappropriate and wrong thing for Tamar to do. Okay, but we understand the situation that she was put in. Her, situ- her situation was basically, she had to do something. Something had to be done to save her life and to save her dignity. And so when we look at this story, and we look at the story of Tamar, and we wonder why she's listed in the genealogy of Jesus, we have to look at the story and we have to wonder, what is this story actually about? And I, think that I see there's two things, and I'm going to try to get through these quick because we're running low on time. But I see that this story is really about two things. First, it's about Judah and his downfalls, how bad of a guy Judah is. But not just about how bad Judah is, but ultimately we see, if you continue reading the story, that this moment in Judah's life is really a turning point. And this story is about the grace of God and God's mercy to Judah. In fact, we see Judah go on to be blessed, not only on this earth, Whenever he ends up in Egypt with his brother Joseph, it says he was greatly blessed. Judah is. But we also read in Revelation that Judah's name is on the gates of heaven, meaning he is very well blessed in heaven as well. And so this moment shows that no matter how bad Judah was as a person, God forgave him. God showed him grace and mercy for all the horrible things he did. And so this story is really about not just the grace and mercy that God showed Judah, but the grace and mercy that God would ultimately show through the Messiah that would come from the line of Judah. Second, this story illustrates how God's plan can be worked through all and any obstacles. Guys, I, I, I can't paint the picture big enough here, But Tamar's situation was awful. And Judah's attitude towards the situation was awful. And this led Tamar to do something that we all would look at and say is a really messed up thing to do. And yet, she's hailed as a hero in the Bible. And so we look at this and we see her do this thing that even in today's society we would look at and be like, that is just really wrong for her to do that. But yet the Bible paints her as some sort of hero. She did what she had to do to fulfill the plan that God had laid out for her. And and I think as we look at this, it may make us need to redraw the lines of where we draw sin in our culture. <coughs> I think of a verse in Luke twelve, verse forty eight, and it essentially says, "To mu- to who much is given, much is expected, and to who is given little, less is expected." And we look at this idea that to Judah, the greatest blessings—you know, the, a tribe after him and the knowledge of who God was. And Judah had everything going for him, and a lot was expected of him, and he failed miserably. And then we see, on the other hand, Tamar, someone who had very little knowledge of God, who was not, who really was in a bad like, situation because she didn't understand everything. She knew very little, so little was expected of her. The story ultimately comes down to Judah... Needing to be someone who takes greater concern for caring for his family and caring for others and honoring his commitments that he has made to Tamar? More than it is, that the story's more about that, more about Judah and where he messed up than it is about Tamar messing up. Now, now don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that as Christians we have this loophole to sit around and like Do really bad things and be like, well, (laughs) that's more about someone else who did wrong to me than me doing wrong. Like, that's not what I'm saying here. But this should call into question the rigidness in which we see the Bible's rules. I mean, I think that our society sees Christianity as like a strict set of rules that you have to follow to be a good enough person. Like, And that's not what Christianity is about. In reality, it's about following God's call on our life. And my story, the call on my life and the path that God has laid out for me is different from the path that he's laid out for each and every one of you. In fact, each and every one of you in here, your path is different from every other path. And our life is not about following rules, it's about following God. But what we see from Tamar's story here is that we need to be people who are slow to judge someone based on their actions. Because we may not be fully aware of their reasonings. And sometimes, sometimes we have to do things that may seem like they go against God's commands to follow God's plan. I'm going to say that again because this is important. Sometimes we have to do things that seem seem like they go against God's commands to follow God's plan. For example, if your parents tell you not to go to church, not to read your Bible, not to get baptized, or not to do other things that God is calling you to do, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to honor your father and mother as the Bible commands? Or are you supposed to dishonor your parents in in obedience to God and his call on your life? Like, that's a tough question, right? Like, we would all sit here and we'd be like, well, the Bible says to honor your father and mother, so I need to honor my father and mother. But if they're telling you not to follow the call of God, the call of God is higher than the call of your mother and father. And I'm not telling you to go home and dishonor your parents, okay? Okay. But I'm saying that understand that the call of God supersedes any of the other commands that he's given you. Because the command he is currently giving you is the command you need to follow. We have to be people who realize the importance of God's command and the importance of God's call on our life. And ultimately, if God calls upon you to do something, like just let's say perhaps establish the tribe that's going to lead to the Messiah... Sometimes you have to step out in faith and do something that could put your reputation or maybe even your life in danger. Like, Tamar literally put her life on the line in doing what she did. Like, Judah could have seen the seal and the staff that she gave back to him, and he could have said, oh, thank you for those back. Burn her! And the story would have ended right there. She put... Her life on the line in faith that God would see her through. We see Tamar do this. And Judah turns around and calls her righteous. And ultimately, we see Tamar's heroics noted, not just in Genesis, but we see her heroics noted in the story And the genealogy of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of mankind. And so not only in this moment does she redeem herself, redeem her her dignity, redeem her family, redeem her tribe. But in the process, she redeems mankind because if she were not to have done what she did, God's plan... For the redemption of the world would not have unfolded the way that it did. Tamar. The first woman of Christmas. Because without her, the tribe of Judah doesn't even begin. And we don't even get to Christmas. Guys, I hope you, I hope you enjoyed looking at this story. And, and, and we're going to look at three more women in the genealogy of Jesus over the next few weeks. A reminder, we know... Wednesday night next week. Happy Thanksgiving. Go spend time with your families. It's good. I'm going to pray for you guys, and we're going to be dismissed. God, thank you so much for this evening where we get to come together and look at your word and look at stories from Scripture that show us important things about who you are, the plan you have for our life, and the plan that you have for all of mankind. God, we thank you for the foresight that you saw. We thank you for the courage of Tamar to step out and do what she did to ultimately lead to the story that, where you redeem the world, God. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that you showed Judah in this story, that we can see him turn his life around and be an example of how, no matter what has happened to us in our life or what bad decisions we've made to destroy ourselves or others, that you are waiting and ready to forgive us and redeem us, God. I pray that you would help any student in here who sees themselves as unworthy or unfit to serve you, to realize that you are ready to use them in the way that you have planned, God. And I just pray that you would give them the courage to step out and say, God, I'm ready to be used by you tonight. I pray that you would just put that on their hearts and help them to continue to strive after you and grow and do what you have called them to do, God. And We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.